This is for the nerds, this is for the brainiacs, this is what we deserve Go ahead and play it back, you ain't gonna touch me You not gonna do nothing, you are not above me I bet you wish you was me, I know that I know What is poppin' everybody? And welcome back to another special episode of the Only Friends Podcast. Well, you know, it's me and my only friends, which includes, but is not limited to, Matthew Hunt. What's poppin', baby? Hey, Conrad. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm chillin', baby. Chillin'. Another day in the life. Good. What's going on? We're here for Wednesday Strat Chat. We're about to get it poppin' in we here, are, man. Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna talk some Strat. We're also gonna talk about... I don't know what, what else are we talking about, Buck. Psychics around High here. High stakes poker today. Oh. High stakes poker. I, I managed to find my way into this prestigious show for the Thinking first time. Thinking of aggressive ever. players. <laughs> it didn't go well. Didn't Did go, go well, cuz. <laughs> Did didn't go, go well. well it wasn't even like you were bluffing. No. No, that works. Yeah. <laughs> right. They, gave, they kept giving me aces. Mm. Yeah, it's weird when they give you good hands. Yeah. Fuck. Don't get good hands. That's how, that's how you lose at poker. Yeah, you, you, you get, get really good hands that don't win. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They all fall when you bluff. I didn't know he was going with that, but then it kind of made sense. When you're good. <laughs> when you're good at poker. <laughs> right, right. I when see. you're bad at poker, there's all different kinds of ways to lose. Sure. <laughs> sure. We can talk about that a little bit uh, as we get into today's show. Uh, it is Strat Chat Wednesday, so we're going to have a long block on how to deal with loose, aggressive players. Or as we came to know them coming up through the system, lags. No, oh, the lags. The yeah, lags. you were never a lag. What are you smiling no. about? I love them, though. He was though. a tag. I was. <laughs> or like whatever, tap, whatever. Yeah. Not, not tap, tight aggressive. Tight passive. <laughs> tap, yeah. Yep. Tight passive. Just sitting there waiting for aces, letting the lags just give me all their money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just fucking <laughs> printed, didn't you? Tortoise passive. Uh, tor eight eight <laughs> sessions in a row, Burke. Birth. You won eight in a row? I'm on an eight-session eight winning streak. Feels yes. good, doesn't go. it? Feels nice, yeah. I, I was very close yesterday. I texted Guapo. There's twenty. I was like, I'm playing for twenty more minutes, and I'm up one dollar. <laughs> I was literally at one dollar. I was in for four hundred. I had four hundred one in front of me. I go, can I do it? I ended up uh, cashing out four ninety. Let's Man. go. Man, those, those are the kind of days where like Lamana finds a way to cling to a tiny little win. Where mm -hmm. I look at that being up one dollar, and I'm like, I'm not leaving this motherfucker unless I double or go bust. No, I had to leave. I, I had I had plans. It's a weird thing when it comes to having the win streak because at some point you kind of want to keep the streak going versus actually win the max. So I actually was talking with Guapo. I said, I said, listen, I understand that winning streaks end. So like, I'm not playing like to try to keep the streak going because it's going to end sometime. So who cares? Just right, play to win the max. Mm -hmm. But you're, but it can creep into your mind like, oh, I just want to lock this up so I can keep the streak going. You almost locked up a dollar. I should have. I should have just left right there. <laughs> and it also, it works the same way or the inverse way with losing streaks, right? Where, like for me, when I, if I, on, in tournaments, if I have like a streak with like 25 buy-ins or something without a cash, which is, you know, it happens. Sometimes I'm just like, oh, I just really want to cash something. Like I, I don't, I don't want to be... 30 and 0, I don't want to be 35 and 0, like right. something like that. Like, so you get to a point where you're like, there's 20 of 20 percent of the field left. We're not quite at the bubble. Like, I've got like a close spot, and I'm like, I really don't want to have to I take just this need spot. this cash, right? Like, <laughs> it because you you don't want to think that way, but yeah. you you can't avoid it sometimes because you just don't want that streak of 
losing to continue. You know, it mm -hmm. just it feels it re reinforces your confidence. I mean, it can be beneficial psychologically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, and it's not like I actually make decisions differently, but like mm -hmm. there are times where you're just like, man, I really don't want to bust here. Like, right. I I just want to cash an event for a change. You know, like mm -hmm. it does happen. I can tell you a thing or two about a thing or two when it comes to losing streaks. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm on a healthy, healthy, uh, elongated one. Just to to give you an idea. No, no, no. He's crunching the numbers. Looking. Uh, <laughs> let me just filter for the last two months. Let's, no, no, let's no. See, let's see what it's been like. Uh, we don't have to do that. The what? last... It, months. If you want to know Landon's pain, you just take five percent of whatever Berkey's about to say. Right. Don't say it. No, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll we'll go back to let's call it August fifteenth. All right. Let's see what it is. Shout out Brent Hanks. Let's see what it is. Okay. That's, That's his, birthday. his birthday. Yeah. Oh, talking about birthdays. Happy birthday, Gary Gates. That's right. Yeah. Gary Gates's birthday. Hmm. Oh, Happy man. birthday, Gary Gates. Happy birthday, Gary. Okay. Main event final table legend. Right. Ledge. Oh, that's right. He did Final Table. Wow, right, you're such did. a miserable. Totally forgot about that. He's, uh, he's from our neck of the woods. He grew up in Titusville, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. He's ginger adjacent. Of, well, yeah. He's a Dolphins fan. Mm. How, how are him and Greg both Dolphins fans growing something, up in Titusville? Something in the water in Titusville. Very I guess. strange. I don't know. Very, yeah. very There's strange. There's a lot of Dolphins in, in Titusville. Greg's a Dolphins uh, a lot, fan? See, yeah, I, a lot this of is Dolphins. one thing I'm learning about American sports. Like, people don't just root for the team from wherever they're from always. Like, well, if you're from Pittsburgh, you do. Well, yeah. But, like, sometimes I'll meet someone and they'll be from one place and they root for a team completely on the other side of the country for no reason other than they just want to. And it's, it's Usually it's in your heritage. In Usually mm -hmm. it's bandwagon jumping. Yeah. yeah, or that. They got a winning team the year they were born that. or something like that rebelling against your father yeah, a lot <laughs> of that going it's on. very different in europe with with european football teams soccer teams um if you don't root for the team that's like from where you're from or if you root for a team they hang you but, well <laughs> effectively like if you root for a team just because they win which is quite common uh people will definitely look down on that yeah like, people will really just be like you're they'll call you a plastic fan like plastic. you're not a real fan i love it you're glory hunter <laughs> like you're just you're not like legit these are the people just root for a good team these are the people that get beat up in the train stations right yeah basically I've, yeah i've seen all these movies <laughs> although that's more that's more like when it's two rival teams right so it's mm. not it's not like it's, if someone's the, the classic is like someone supports manchester united but they're from like a completely different part of the country they're not from Manchester. Yeah. Like, that's the classic thing. You don't beat that kid up. You just, like, look down on him. You know? <laughs> it's but, like, like the U.S. version of Bandwagoner. Yeah, it's basically, mm -hmm. yeah, it, it kind of is. Plastic that. fan. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> Glory the, the, uh, yeah. the, the violence <laughs> or, like, the actual, like, hooliganism and stuff is when you've got two rival teams playing each other, and it's, like, people who live in close proximity, and they absolutely hate each other, and they're just going to fight because why not, I guess. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the essence of European... Football, uh, I would imagine that both Greg and Gary trace their Miami Dolphin fanhood back to Dan Marino, who is yeah. a Yinzer anyway. Greg, for sure. Our friend Greg, for yeah. sure. Um, it all comes back to the sure Gary at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. you know, just well, there, there is, a, there is a, a pit campus up there in Titusville. So. Yeah. Dolphins look really good this year. No one cares. You only say that because they do you're sad. Really good. I, you know, I know how this ends, bro. Motherfucking Jets this week. You're an idiot. Shut up. <laughs> all right. Enough. Uh... <laughs> We <laughs> I've had enough of you over, over my last 196 hours, so call it 200, uh, which is 27 sessions. I've lost 24 of them for a net total of minus 370k. Oh, it's not even that bad. I mean, you've lost more than that in a session before. Like that doesn't seem like oh that big. Oh my god! Well, not, at this, not at this. Not at this. 18.5 landing. 
You was doing good before that. Oh before. my god! I was doing good before that. Um, At least that'll make your tax bill a little less. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know that that's really the the upside I'm looking it's here. It's a write-off. Tortoise. You have to see uh, the good yeah. and the bad. Yeah, a third of a million dollars. It's a write-off. Tortoise yeah, always know, looks for the upside. Uh, I don't. I don't really see it that way, my friend. Um, uh, let's look at the thirty sessions prior to that. See, I'm sure that was probably better. Well, we'll see. <laughs> it's like up a million. Well, this is where. This Does this is, include airball? No. No. no, 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 no. That's that's a whole was, that's separate just like thing. Icing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it was way back in you know this, April. This or is May. The thirty days ago. prior. That's probably like up five hundred. <laughs> he uh, needs 500. to do this to cope. This I is the coping mechanism. I bet this is seven not figures. Cope. This is not. No, it's not seven figures. That mm. would be insane. Oh, I guess right. so. thirty like five, sessions. 500, oh yeah, yeah. Come on, bro. I mean, if you can lose three hundred thousand and thirty, you can win triple that, right? I mean, you're a real optimistic human. All right, let's see. Uh, Thirty sessions prior to that, I was plus two hundred and ninety thousand. Mm, that's less. That is less. So in that's the past six, sixty, 60 six, sessions, fifty-five sessions, you're down a little bit, down, a little. down small. Yep. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, sixty sessions of live poker is not a lot of hands, though, right? Like. You're well, I've only a let's see hundred hands a session. Yeah, 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 but it's not about that. You just it's the spots hunt. Yeah, you know? I know. I'm just it's, saying, it's like for the, the people out there who are online players who focus much more on number of hands, like the volume. The, yeah, the actual volume of hands that you're playing is what. I mean, if you're playing two hundred, even if you're playing two hundred hands a session over sixty second sessions, you're talking like it's. 20. It's also why I like when zooming in on these uh, on these small distributions. Like so that equates for half of my play for the year, right? Mm-hmm. So I've played 124 sessions. That was 60 of them. Uh all told for and and it's basically like minus 100k. Is this all post World Series? Yeah. Uh it was like no. Mm-hmm. Right at the end and then the losing? The, no, the, the 60 sessions. No. Can't be. I don't know. You play every day. Yeah, it's October. Okay. I don't play every day. Not every no, day. No, it went back to like mid-June. No, yeah, you oh. guess you play like 3 days a week. Yeah, lucky. Well, I played every day during the summer. Mid-June is around WSOP time. Yeah. He said the end of WSOP. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which I also thought it was. It's actually almost the start of uh, WSOP. Yeah, even. I thought you were... Uh, time. Uh, <laughs> time is a construct. Can I get a thought out? Nope. <laughs> Clock. So <laughs> this accounts for half of my sessions for the year, which totals like minus 100K or so. Basically like five buy-ins. Um... The other 60 sessions, I'm plus 1.1 million. There you go. So it's, uh, and that includes airball, of course. Oh. It includes airball, it includes like high stakes mm-hmm. poker, um, which we can talk about. I got filleted there as well. Not a good debut. You know, you got the dream that everybody could ever ask for. You, you get to walk into the Poker Go studio, just like the good old days on high stakes poker. The set is a nice little living room with the strip and Aria in the background. You know, just like the good old days. Just like the good old days. Back on Game cash Show on the table. The good old days, it was like filmed at the Nugget. It was filmed, <laughs> filmed in like a low ceiling yeah. suite at the Nugget that had 1970s decor. Yeah. It was beautiful. Uh, now we get to play in this modern studio that is gorgeous in its own right, but, um, you know, definitely a different, different sort of setting. But yeah, you know, you got the dream. You walk in. Playing high stakes poker, they hand you a brick of fifty k cash. They I say, love the cash on the table. They say, put that on the table, man. It's good for the TV. It's good mm-hmm. for the look. And guess what? You're gonna have Jason Kuhn to your left. <laughs> fun. Have fun. 
enjoy. Have you See? ever played with bricks of cash on the table before? Oh God, yeah. Back in the day, okay. ten twenty, man. That's well, I, 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 I'm a tournament player. I don't cash know. Cash was mm. king. I mean, back then we thought that uh, we thought having chips was. We were allergic to chips. Mm-hmm. We thought having chips was bad. It's like, they're going to fucking come get you. Can you imagine if they did that at like 1 2, like 2 5? Just like play with a bunch of dollar bills on the table. Well, hundreds played. Hundreds used to play at like every yeah, stake. Every stake, yeah. Wow, when we moved to Vegas, there was always cash on the table almost any stake you're playing. Mm-hmm. Um, 5 10 a lot. You would wow. just see people with like. like that. Or, you know, straps of, but not, of 10K. Not, like, not like a brick of five dollar bills, though. That, no, yeah, no, no, that's no. what I'm saying. We, It'd be we, funny. Like, we loved it, but then, like, also, there was like drawbacks. It's just like, how much do you have? And then they could lie about it, and then it hit the counter off. They're all in, it's just, like, <laughs> counting draw, out all like, the hundreds, pe- you know, people like not not being willing to count their chips or not being willing to tell you how much they have or whatever is like people would of, try to hide like hide how much they had you know it's one of my pet mm-hmm. hates at the poker table like, yeah because it's just the most pointless stupid thing like how does it like just tell me how much you have if your chips are not stacked right it's right. just such a nice easy thing to do and it just pays me when people don't do it you First, can still play with cash at gold nugget gold nuggets like the only place do we know why they they ultimately got rid of the cash on the table. Um, I Part think for the reasons you talked about, I think it was largely Maybe. just a gaming decision. Yeah, and casinos were complying, but I, I also think that they can, you know, per the golden nugget, I think they have the option. Mm. Uh, they could allow cash to play, but they just—it's it, just really fucking dumb to let it play. Uh, I saw another place. Somebody posted that they were playing. I feel like it was like Rhode Island or something, and they allowed cash on the table as well. Honestly, too much fuckery can go around. Yeah. Way too much. It's yeah. it's honestly it's fine in like capped games mm-hmm. that are relatively small where you're never gonna have more than like a thousand dollars in actual cash on the table. Yeah. That's fine. It's easy to count. It's difficult to like stuff a bunch of one dollar bills in between and make it look like you have more. Exactly. Like there's just a million ways to angle with cash that you can't really do as cleanly with chips unless you're hiding your big chips type. Shout of out thing. to Scumbag Rich. He always finds his way back into the pod. You guys remember the uh, the James Bond movie with all the poker in it, Casino Royale, where yep. like they have that scene where uh, the guy throws his car keys on the table and he's like, "This is on the table. This plays." They should do that. It's just whatever you put on the table is now in play. That's the new rule. Have to have a uh, have to have somebody like Rick from the pawn shop at the table at all times <laughs> to appraise it. Right. Yeah. Can do is forty thousand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let me see. Uh, I gotta call somebody. Yeah, call I, I, gotta see, yeah. I gotta see if that's legit. Get the expert. You're just oh, like man. you're betting. You're just like throwing random objects on the table. Like I bet this. I raise this. You know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I need an appraisal. But yeah, I mean the game. The game was pretty good. Uh, Rob was there, so always a lot of fun banter and uh, torture for me. Um, <laughs> he loves to torture you. Doesn't he, he? Yeah. he really fucking does. He stacked me early with seven six. I guess I could just fold the turn, man. It, I don't the, know. It's the British in him, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, any any British person that you that you make friends with is just going to start torturing. But you. Yeah. Berkey's like a glutton for it. Like I, I feel like. Oh, I, f- I know that's how they show love. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. But like, I feel like he just tortures you every time you play, but you'd want to play with him every single session. Yeah, it'd be nice if, you know, he didn't (laughs) suck out all the time. Uh, He spiked the straight and just goes, what a dirty raise by me. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, check raised me on on 9-8 brick, 9-8 deuce or 9-8-3, something like that. And I had aces, no heart. Uh, I I said I should just like fuck you three bet because like, whatever, man, I'm never folding aces to Rob Young. Minus, you know, it coming heart heart or something. Yeah. Turns a five and he just like bets. 
He had no idea what was in the pot, what he was betting, how much my stack was. He just bet. And he bet big because he had the nuts. And I'm just like, well, I'm committed. I mean, do I just fold here to fucking full pot on 9835? Why is Sven making it? Who is that? It's what? Sven. 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 Why, why, why is Sven here? Fuck I, Sven. I, there's something I missed. Who the hell is that? Uh, we were complaining yesterday that GG's taking money out of the prize pool to pay their online players to come to Bahamas. Yeah, I'm up on that, but who... who well, I, I just said that I personally, as a player, don't want to pay for Sven's ticket. You know, oh, so I, the, now Sven is just... Sven just represents the GG player <laughs> yes, pool. Right. Yeah. So did, you, did you just, like, Google for a random picture of a Scandinavian man? Like, that came from? I'm just not okay with it, you oh know? My God. He, he can stay next door in the fucking down bad multicolor motel with the rest of us. Just it's bullshit, really. The breezes? I don't. Yeah, breezes. <laughs> Could be breezes. I don't know. Maybe. That is a very Scandinavian-looking man. You picked the right picture. Yeah. yeah, I agree. You know what we're doing around here? Do you? Do, I we, don't. do we know what's going on around here? I mean, we collectively. I mean, theoretically, are, we know. You guys are making my fucking job hard today. I gotta tell you. All right. All right. <laughs> Sorry, what's your job? We, we had two that's things on run of show, and I can't get through the first well, one. All right, let's get that's what happens. One. Well, I got nothing. Hey. Uh, let's talk about aggressive players, I suppose. All right. Um, like Rob Young. Yeah. Well, not <laughs> he check really. Check raise you. <laughs> he did nuts. I don't think check raising makes somebody aggressive necessarily. I mean, um, part of it. I what mean, does Brian think at the South Point? Brian check yeah. raises once in a while. I do. He's not aggressive. I, I'm the most aggressive player at the table. I gotta <laughs> tell you. He also has the nuts. Not say much. <laughs> when, when the I most aggressive player at the table is a guy nicknamed the Tortoise, <laughs> that says a lot about the game. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it really does change the game dynamics a bit whenever uh, they have a placard up that says check raising is discouraged. <laughs> I, I love that whenever you go into a poker room and they're like check raising is allowed yeah you know, like that's, that's a good that's it's a sign very, the you as a British soft. man should understand uh, when the culture is being insulted and to to look a man in the eye and say I don't believe you I raise yeah very, very insulting. Yeah, I mean, back in the day, I can imagine that check raising was really fragile. Oh, I, I imagine that's people, equivalent of saying, like, fuck your mother, let's yeah. fight. People got shot back <laughs> in the much. day for this shit. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's true. Check, imagine that. You check raise the flop, like, with a standard hand, and you just get killed for it. <laughs> <laughs> How dare like, you? And, or the only way you don't is if you can literally turn over nuts. Yeah. yeah. Like, you have to turn over fucking, like, not, not no, middle set. No, no, set. no. When you have the nuts, you're lead. supposed to bet your own hand. Right. Imagine yeah, just taking, like, the, one of those back doors that you're just supposed mm -hmm. to check raise in a standard spot, and then some guy's just mad yeah. about it. You, you take know? an ace four on a king five deuce. Yeah, exactly. And they just, yeah, yeah, no, there was a lot of that going on in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, yeah. A, lot of, a lot of the check raising with the it's uh, funny because ace high back doors. Well, way back when, and even still now, people use, like, the I'm just trying to make a move. Right, they don't really yeah. have like rhyme or reason as per the check yeah. raise. It's yeah. just random two cards. You're making a move, right? right. Like, I was yeah. making a move because you're making a move. Mm -hmm. Yeah, move like as soon as you hear someone talking about the idea of a move, like, that's <laughs> I love it. That's a, a pretty clear sign that this is a person that doesn't have a well-rounded knowledge of strategy. You know, and it's it's amazing how often as soon as the hand gets turned over, that's hot. That's what I thought you had. Yeah. <laughs> Every time. It's, funny, I mean, right? it's like 15 times a day. Ah, that's what I thought. I, I thought that's exactly what I thought you had. It's especially funny when they call the river and they're like, I knew you had that. And it's yeah. like, no, you didn't. Because if you did, you wouldn't have called. You know? 
but yeah, let's talk uh, about aggressive players, I guess. It's it's confirmation bias, you know. Yeah, yeah. You you know, you have a high degree of confidence, and then when you see it, it's like fuck. Why? Yeah. Why do exactly I do this right. to myself? You do this every so often. Oh, I do this wow. a lot. I do this quite <laughs> frequently. Uh, I might have done it yesterday. To be <laughs> there was. Yeah. You forgot the pot odds existed. I played a hand against Brewer where uh, th this is this is what it's like whenever you're just constantly losing. Brewer gets sat to my left in what was once probably the softest game that I had played in a long time, and it kind of broke down. It was still a good game, obviously worth playing, but uh, I open King Queen in the cut over a limp. He calls the button, the limper calls, and it comes like King Queen five all hearts. Um. We all check to Brewer. He bets like quarter. I call. Uh, turn is like a brick. Uh, I check. He bets like 40%. I call. And the river's like another brick. So it ran out like, it was like king, queen, five, four, deuce. Uh, hearts don't get there. So I check river. I have like king, queen, black. And he bets 11K into uh, maybe five. Five and a half, like two hundred percent pot. I was just like, "This is so annoying." Like, uh, I hardly have a pure call here. I don't even know what frequency I'm supposed to call. But I also just like, he and I were very deep. We were like 150k effective. I'm just like, I know that he's you know very capable and could be doing a lot of things here. But also, it's like, I don't exactly know what his calling range is <laughs> when I ISO a whale limper type of thing, like. Mm -hmm. He might not necessarily have all the hands that he would usually have if this was just a standard cutoff open button uh, defend. So I was like, he might not even have all the available bluffs. I'm just going to roll for a low number here. So I gave myself 80% fold and I roll. And of course I land on call and I snap and he has eight, six of hearts. And it's like, you know, <laughs> I know you fucking have that. <laughs> Like, do I really need to be... Like, just... You're good. I don't need to call to defend. <laughs> fuck you. Like, just fuck you. Fold. I fold. Just let him... I just fold. We're going to play for three hours together. There are five other people in this game that are not winning versus me. You're on my left, and you're putting me in a zero EV spot. Like, fuck you. I, I just... I always fold. You can take advantage of me for the next three hours. Just pure Just fold. do it. Yeah. Is that uh? So is that is that what we're leaning towards as far as exploiting aggressive players? Just just fold a lot. Just let them have it. I don't think we're advocating for <laughs> well, this. I don't, I don't think we're going that. No. Way. How do you beat aggressive players? You just fold to them. No, no, obviously not. I'm I'm commiserating a bit, but uh, I I was just kind of like relaying where it's like the I know you have that type of thing. Like mm -hmm. I can run down twelve flushes that I think he has, and like you know four or five comparable bluffs i guess uh i'm sure he's running it appropriately with small pairs but also like if he shows me deuces there i mean you rolled 80 percent. that's reasonable you just i you ran went, bad yeah you just ran, ran bad. bad you just you just hit a fucking 20 percenter it's just rare that i have a hand that like in in yeah. general i would like to just always call <laughs> right. with but my instinct in that moment was like just fucking fold man just have some discipline and fold and i was like no you know what i'm gonna do the right thing I am gonna yep. mix, mm -hmm. and I'm gonna get appropriately punished for this. Yep, that's you. I've been, I've been grudgingly was like, I, I literally mix like five times a year, and it's always wrong. Right. <laughs> it's only against good players, and it always comes up wrong. Yeah. It's like, god damn it, man. What did you use as your randomizer? Just the chip. Oh, just like the positioning of the yeah. the top of the chip. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Came back at one o'clock. You you forgot the pot odds were real in a different hand. Oh, I don't want to talk about that. 
We can save that for the muck tomorrow. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm very very deep in the muck. Uh, <laughs> we had this conversation <laughs> yesterday. We said pot out to real, and you forgot. Uh, that's that's not important. Okay. Um, let's let's actually talk about aggressive players, shall we? Yeah. Yes. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> Please. <laughs> well, I, but I feel like you you probably are accustomed to being the most aggressive player in most games, so it's probably something you have to deal with less than the rest of us do. Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. Uh, How do you deal with one when you are one? I, it I, takes one to know one. Honestly, like it's I look forward to aggressive players in my game because it takes a lot of the onus off of me. Um, but also, I think I think we mis mistake uh, what the terminology of this means. So uh, I think for the audience, a lot of what they would deem to be quote unquote aggressive players are just players that are loose, mm -hmm. just like flat loose, uh, and probably if we looked at their frequencies, aren't really truly aggressive at all. A lot of the best aggressive players out there would be deemed to be tight. So, you know, when, when you're talking about, like, a brewer type, maybe a little bit less brewer, he gets the live element pretty well, but, like, people who fall into that category of, like, incredibly studied, very sharp, really theoretically sound, and don't really deviate off of it, the way that presents in a live environment is that they're kind of just, like, fairly nitty, trying to uh capture like all of the free money from everybody else splashing around right so they don't actually come off as aggressive at all like from playing with brewer yesterday i know he's a very aggressive player but that would not be the label that i would have used for him i would have said he's very calculated he's very patient studied, yeah. uh he's very studied you know i might even if i'm a little tilted call him tight yeah, which <laughs> deemed to be aggressive it's <laughs> just part of the game right but the truth of the matter is he's probably the most aggressive player in the game because he's doing the most overbetting. He's doing the most check raising. Like his, his actual frequencies when he plays hands are very aggressive. I think the more common terminology utilized and the one that we're more speaking to today is the lag. The, the loose aggressive player, big emphasis on loose. Right? right, like the archetype, less so the perceived. Yeah, it's not so much that they're putting in money aggressively a lot it's just that they're putting in money a lot right. and sometimes it happens to be aggressively there's a difference between choosing uh ag like being aggressive by <laughs> betting 50 percent pot versus betting 200 percent pot mm -hmm. right where in most cases most people are just going to put in money and try to get to showdown but not actually use those bet sizes and use the smaller ones and say oh they're aggressive because they play a lot of hands but there's a difference between actually being aggressive and just playing wide. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it just distills down to a level of comfort, right? When somebody's funneling in a lot of money over and over and over again, it seems like their fold button is broken. It makes the other person very uncomfortable because how often do you have enough confidence in your hand that you're willing to match that? Right. Right. But their their threshold is just incredibly low. Their, <laughs> their willingness to put money in, um, and it's not even necessarily bad. Matter of fact, I would make a pretty strong case that it's pretty good in most environments. The loose aggressive? Yeah, because mm -hmm. what they ultimately get correct is the threshold of equity necessary to continue versus certain sizings is relatively low. When somebody bets half pot, you only need 30% equity to you, call. You don't really fold very much versus small sizes. Right. But people mistake, even uh, we were talking about a hand the other day, I, I think maybe even Guapo on Monday. Uh, he's like, oh, this is a pretty chunky bet on the Yeah, end. it was the river bet, 16 and 19. Yeah, and it's like, oh, we bet 75%. That's actually not all that big. You know, you, you only need like 40% equity to in call In relation it. to what could have been chosen. Right. Just from the aggregate. Or just also in relation to how much equity you need to call there. Yeah. Right. right? I think another thing that gets kind of lost 
for a lot of people is not thinking about it in terms of how it affects what street you're on, right? Because, <clears throat> excuse me, someone who's putting in a lot of money on the earlier streets at a high frequency is going to be more, uh, it's going to be more visible because the earlier streets are happening in every hand, right? Mm -hmm. You're seeing a lot more flops, your pre-flop happens every hand, et cetera, et cetera. Someone who's very aggressive on the later streets, who's actually over bluffing, raising a lot, you know, doing a lot of like later street aggression, it's going to take quite a long time to notice that that's even happening. So a lot of the time what ends up happening is players will label somebody as being overly aggressive or like loose aggressive because they're playing a lot of hands, they're V-pipping a lot, they're, they're entering pots a lot on the earlier streets. But what they won't realize is that when they actually get to turns and rivers, that player is not over bluffing as much as you might think. And in the end, that player actually gets paid off when they make big hands because this perception is that they just don't have it. Classic, they have it. classic airball archetype. Is that the yeah. fake action pro? Yeah. The faps. Faps, yeah. That, that's really what we're, well, fap, if there's a Venn diagram of loose aggressive players and uh, fake action pros, uh, I think that you know there's there's an overlap, mm. but not all fake action pros are loose aggressive players. Right. Let's yeah. put it that way. The rectangle square <clears throat> argument. Yeah, yeah, to some degree. Um, <laughs> so, with that being said, what what is the the natural counter then if somebody's putting in way too much money too loosely early, but then very little money uh, loosely late? You just have to push your equity earlier on. You just have to put more money in the pot or, or grow the size of the pot with high equity hands, you know, with your higher equity draws, with your, your strong hands, you have to be more willing to, to grow pots earlier on and um, just get the, get the best of it when your equity is, is favorable against a range that's going to be too wide. And then when you do face aggression on later streets, you have to be willing to make big folds. And this is not a, a particularly comfortable um, adjustment for a lot of people because it feels weird to be like well i'm gonna three bet this guy really wide because he never folds to three bets but then as soon as he bets river on certain board textures i'm just gonna like make bigger folds than i usually would because those are two things that don't seem to go together right but it it, it really comes down to the fact that the river and to a lesser extent the turn but in particular the river is so different from the earlier streets in terms of what adjustments you can make because there's no no more streets to come when you're on the earlier streets and there's multiple more streets to come, pushing your equity and growing the size of the pot, getting thin value from, from hands that wouldn't usually be able to get value, that counts for a lot because of just how much it grows the pot and how much it influences the way the later streets are going to play out, as well as having the ability to deny free equity realization to the other range. So for the most part, it, it, a lot of it comes down to being able to bloat pots earlier on and then give yourself more options later on when you do face aggression. Yeah, I, I think that that's, uh, that's a non-intuitive response. I think most people, once they slap the label of loose aggressive on somebody, they think, oh, I'm going to bluff catch him to death. Yeah, and that sucks. And it's also just very uh, dysfunctional because they're aware that you're trying to bluff catch. Yeah. So the tempo <laughs> is... They're aware. They have... A brain. Yeah, well, the tempo is just like for them, front load a bunch of aggression, and if that fails, get there. Yeah. You know? And when you don't get there, surrender. And now the people who are responding passively 
are just getting filleted because they are making a lot of break-even calls early or maybe slightly winning calls early, but they don't accrue the additional value late in the hand, and then they pay off like a slot machine <laughs> because this guy is a supposed maniac, right? Um, so I think Hunt's, uh, Hunt's points here are very valid in like a big way that I used to build my strategies when I would play against people who um, I thought fit that archetype where you just have to counter aggress uh, in a in a meaningful way, and I think a lot of people just aren't comfortable with that. Yeah, right. The idea that you're going to be betting into a lunatic or check raising a lunatic who doesn't seem to have a fold button gets very uncomfortable with middle of range. There's a lot of uncertainty, especially when you're using a hand that is going to potentially get continued on, where you're check raising for denial and protection purposes. Like you check raise, call it a queen eight on like an eight five deuce board. And then you get floated. You're like, oh shit, like this guy's aggressive, but now he called the check raise and it turned to Jack. I don't know what to do anymore. And oh. now how am I supposed to play versus these bets? And am I supposed to bet myself? So it's kind of like, I don't want to have the tough decision of actually trying to play poker. I'm just going to do what my hand makes the most sense to do and hope that it works out for me. When I see this happen, like in the live streets, it feels like that always gets shut down on later streets. Like when you get check raise, like somebody, whatever, they're fighting somebody that's aggressive and they check raise on queen or eight, five deuce or something like that. Turn comes Jack. The hand's over. Yeah. Like I it's literally hand check, over. Check, 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 check. That's a yeah. really, oh, no, no. Oh. The aggressive guy's going to bet. Oh, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a, a gotcha. really common mindset that people get themselves into where they, they play a hand in a certain way where they start to think like, as soon as I get any resistance, I'm just, I'm done with this hand. Like mm -hmm. if he calls, I'm shutting down or... You know, if if I if I raise and they don't fold, like I'm I'm done with it. Like that that's such a dangerous way to approach a hand because almost invariably it results in the person being quite easily able to figure out that that's exactly what's happening. So you just lose the pot every time because all the all that happens is they recognize they just don't fold, and as soon as they don't fold, you give up and they just win the pot automatically. Right. And so it just you have to be willing to actually fight for these pots. The one and done strategy, if you yeah. will. Like this is a very real thing from what I've heard of. Oh, like I'll see bet, and if they call, like I'm just going to track down. Like yeah, they've was, shown yeah. resistance, I'm over it. Mm -hmm. I think the best way to prepare for this is uh, the times that you have position on a player like this. Uh, I feel like most people <clears throat> miss a big opportunity um, in these scenarios, in that they probably don't three bet. Uh, nearly enough and in single raise pots where they have the position they definitely don't they don't flop raise nearly enough mm -hmm. with the same mindset of like oh i'm just gonna let him barrel off to me and it's like no you don't understand uh he's actually going to check call the hands that you are attempting to get him to barrel off with mm -hmm. and then he's going to barrel off hands that you don't want to see like he's mm -hmm. just going to polarize pretty well on later streets and then he's going to try to bluff catch himself um with the the middle of range and do so pretty accurately because he's going to expect you to under bluff him since he's so aggressive and the the thing is is that like if you start flop raising a lot more it'll then condition you on how to deal with turns and rivers versus a player like this where the threat of being check raised later is still viable yada yada now you can begin to start to flip that strategy on its head and say like, okay, well, if I'm capable of flop raising this certain subset of hands that have this level of equity, call it, you know, 40% plus type of thing, how then can I start to utilize a similar strategy out of position? It just starts to look a little bit tighter. You just curate a little bit 
uh, more mindfully, right? You can't just start, you can't just start like check raising all your middle pair, right? But you could easily flop raise all your middle pair because it doesn't bluff catch three very well. That type of thing, you know? Right. I think a lot of times, too, people forget the poker is still a two-way street in a heads-up environment where the loose aggressive person still doesn't want to just put money in dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, they just think to themselves, oh, man, like, this guy doesn't care at all. He doesn't care about money. It's like, no, you just try, you try, they're trying to win as much as you're trying yeah. to win. This is especially true with pre-flop. Mm-hmm. Like, there, there's a point where, when it comes to pre-flop, if you're the one putting in the last bet, if you're, like, five-bet jamming against a player who four-bets all the time, like they can't just like call it off with nothing, you know. Like they can't, they can't just like profitably call it off with ten high, right? Like ten nine offsuit or something. Like eventually, there is a point where when the last bet goes in, the person who's <laughs> facing that bet has to actually have equity or sufficient equity in order to continue. And it's, it's that, like chicken, yeah. but you've decided that you don't have an emergency break, right? And the, like the <laughs> you just the, you know <laughs> yeah, and the uh, right this for is it, what, baby. <laughs> this is what online MTTs were like like twelve years ago, right? Like yes, I mean, you like landed, a clicking you were, you war, were like, right? 12 years old or something. The only so reason I know of this is because someone made a song like Mormon Soldier. Yeah, right. That <laughs> that like that's uh midi. Yeah, referencing a lot of stuff that was going on back back in the day, but like it used to be that. It was just pre-flop click wars all the time. It was three bet, four bet, five bet, six bet, seven bet jam, you know, all that stuff. And it was like, who can get away with the smallest click back at some points. <laughs> but like the, the, the reason why that worked is because when people were trying to like constantly just take down pots pre-flop and be the most aggressive player, there came a time where if you were the guy who was willing to, to like jam it in with some trashy hand, like there's a classic hand of like Mormon jamming like seven, five off or something. And then there's, there's a hand of, uh, I think there's a, there's a Davidi Kitai hand or there's a hand from somebody where they jam like 10-4 off or something. Like that's what it came down to. It was like, you're going to be the one who puts in the last bet because they, if, they, if they're six bet bluffing with like a ton of trashy hands, they just can't have it enough <laughs> to stop you from jamming. So the times that you run into aces or kings or whatever are not costing you that much in comparison to you just win the pot at a, at a huge rate. So that's what it became. It became this pre-flop war. And eventually people kind of chilled out and stopped doing that and started <laughs> occasionally flatting four bets and things like that. But, right, they realize you kind of want to protect uh, the mm-hmm. range. And right, right. Polar. So it's, it sort of stopped happening. But it was definitely this dynamic of everybody wants to be the person who puts in the last bet, but also you don't want to, you don't want to jam a hundred bigs when you might be able to click it back for 20 bigs and still get a fold, you know? So. Yeah. It is pretty interesting in the sense of old school people used to do that, call it FTs of uh, MTTs. And yeah. you now kind of see it in the same way with the clicking war, but mm-hmm. now it's a lot more refined yeah. where the polar ranges are very polar, but mm-hmm. instead of doing it with like straight dust, you have to have some sort of blocking property. <laughs> yeah. But they got some things, right? You know, yeah. like being polar is a very real idea. Yeah, like you right. risk not that many chips in order to have a range mm-hmm. that is not to nothing. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that, that happens a lot with ICM, but it's, it's also just very relevant in any situation where your opponent is not going to flat a lot, right? Like if you're, if you're four betting and you know that your opponent's response is going to be to five bet jam or fold, your four bet size should be the smallest you can possibly get away with because if you're never getting flatted, then four betting smaller just allows you to, to have the maximum efficiency with all your bluffs while also inducing as many five bet jams as possible when you have value so it makes a lot of sense and i think that people are really reluctant to engage in this kind of game against aggressive players because they eventually know that it's going to put them in a position of having to risk their stack and even if they 
like, there's kind of this funny thing where even if you told somebody, like, this person is going to just get it in with a super wide range of hands, and therefore, if you get it in pre for 200 bigs with nines, like, you're going to be making a lot of money. There's a lot of people who would be very reluctant because when you get it in with nines and they have ace five and they just hit an ace, it sucks. Like, it hurts. <laughs> and so people want to try to play in a way that protects them against the aggressive player sucking out on them. You know, they, they want to have as much control as possible, but you just can't, you just can't play that way. You well, like, can't, like, have that much control. Old school logic is, and I mean, you still see it, I'm sure you hear it every so often, where it's like, this guy's just going to blast it to me. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. I'm just going to have, call it a lock on a hand, mm -hmm. and someone's going to put in way too much money and be dead. Helmuth. Yeah. Where I'm going to get him. Yeah. We're like, yeah, is this possible? Of course it's possible, but are you really making the most by playing in this way? The answer mm -hmm. is probably not. Right. Yeah. And you're sacrificing opportunities to get value from when they actually do have it, right? Like, in most cases, it's not a huge concern to... Like, when you, when you flop a set, for example, like you're not making as much money from trying to get your opponent to bluff it off in a spot where they don't make a hand as you are from just making sure that every time they have a second best hand, you will just always stack them, yeah. right? And that's something that people just massively lose sight of. Like they, mm -hmm. they start trapping and slow playing and in the end, they just, uh, they, they wind up in a lot of spots where the, the aggressive player just gets there and they're like, well, I can't fold now because I was trapping you this whole way. And you just lose to like a backdoor flush or something like that. And you're like, oh, why did I trap? You know, right. it's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, Especially when I they mean, have like bottom set or something where they can yeah. just have all the like top pairs available Precisely, to them and, yeah, like, and like, they just like, oh, I'm just going to check because, you know, he could have, he might bet. And yeah. And then, and then stuff like people will, will, will also do stuff where they, like they flop really big and they'll like check behind one street, you know, they'll check behind the flop, even at a really high SPR, mm -hmm. um, in a way where, yeah, okay. You might get an extra bet out of the bottom of his range but you can never stack the top or the middle now because mm -hmm. you took a street out of the game tree. And if you are at deep stacks and you take a street out of the game tree, your opponent isn't going to like 7x pot the turn to allow you to still get stacks in by the river, right? right. Like you, you don't need to slow play when it results in just playing a two street game instead of a three street game, yeah. just for the sake of getting your opponent to put one extra bet in with the bottom of their range. You know, I think it, it, people just get kind of they get fooled by the fact that bluff catching and getting somebody to bluff into you when you actually have the nuts, it like feels good. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, it's sort of a satisfying thing of like, oh, I have the nuts and he bet. But would you rather get one bet when he has a bluff or would you rather get their stack when they have a second best hand? And that's, you know, getting their stack, stacking them at the highest frequency is by far the biggest influence on your actual EV. Yeah. Yeah, I can't help it. I can't help but notice or I guess like think that a lot of this just stems from uh, a grave misunderstanding of SPR mm -hmm. uh, specifically. Like if you are against somebody who is pretty loose and what you deem to be aggressive, in other words, he just puts too much money into the pot. Um, what that tends to mean is that he's very good at reducing SPRs to an uncomfortable uh, scenario for you so in other words um, if you're playing single raise pots the SPR is obviously very deep and the threat of it getting reduced down to one is largely the fear that these types of players are instilling in uh, people who don't feel very comfortable bluff catching for multiple streets right mm -hmm. 
Um, conversely, what a player like this is capable of doing is shrinking the SPR on the early streets and then ensuring that the only time stacks are really in jeopardy are when he chooses for them to be in jeopardy, right? So the counter strategy to this is to get very comfortable in manipulating the SPR yourself. And this is something that is a practice that uh, I, I feel like is one of the strongest points of my game when it comes to uh, quote-unquote size mapping, right? Whether I'm the offensive player or the defensive player, when a size is chosen, again, by me or my opponent, I have a very reasonable understanding of what the logical next size will be and how that will impact SPR, right? So if I face quarter pot on flop, I recognize that turn strategies are going to range probably from three quarters pot to overbet, right? And I can guesstimate how that will reduce the SPR, right? So let's say we landed a flop SPR of 10 and I face a quarter pot size. Like, okay, well now we're gonna go into the turn and we're gonna be at like a six SPR. So I recognize now if I face three quarters pot, I'm not going to face an all in on the river. Like mm -hmm. I just won't, right? So if I have a bluff catcher on the flop that then faces three quarters pot on the turn, I know that uh, I'm pretty comfortable bluff catching three here because I'm not gonna face a three X pot jam or a two X pot jam on the river. Uh, it, it's just not all that concerning to me whenever we land on the on the on the river with something like uh three and a half spr right probably just not going to face jam and i can just like happily check call again if need be but this is also probably going to be one of those lines where he either shuts down or bluffs way too cheaply right conversely if i have a nutted hand here and i face three quarters pot on the turn i have to know that i need to check raise because i won't be facing jam on river right and if i want to play for stacks I need to start to lower the SPR myself. I need to take the reins. Now, inversely, if I face the overbet on the turn after quarter pot, say like pot and a half, I have to know that the follow through here is either check check or check jam. Most right? of the time, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm probably just not going to face, well, particularly against this archetype, right? Where we're assuming that it's, it's kind of a... Uh, uh, a less studied strategy and a more uh, hammer to nail type of strategy, right? So, like, their bet, bet, betting, it's to be all in. I, I would argue that when we see, like, a 20% overbet over on turn, like, we almost always see an all in on river. Well, well yeah, but uh, the, the bigger thing I'm just saying is, like, if we see 120% pot on turn, uh, now we're getting ourselves into the territory where, you know, we're looking at something like 1.75 SPR on river, all in is very viable, yeah. right? Like we can predict that. We just know. Mm -hmm. So he may miss the 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 geo sizing here or the two e strat, uh, which is equal bet sizes over the next two streets. He may miss that. He may not recognize that, like you know, the quote unquote proper size here is maybe pot and a half or one hundred and sixty six. He might miss that, but it doesn't matter because you know he's close enough. Where if I face that overbet on the turn, a very polarizing size that should be done with a polarizing range, I can anticipate that the only outcome on the river is going to be check, check, or check, and then he jams, right? Yeah. So I can make my decisions now, uh, planning ahead for the river, right? Like, I'm not going to call again with my worst bluff catchers. You, you just shed them earlier. You know, that's what's uncomfortable about bluff catching player types like this 
is that you expect you expect them to never take their foot off the gas, but like it's not that difficult to be uh, a little bit tempered. You know, it's not that difficult to just overbet the turn and then just say, fuck, you called an overbet. Like, I'm done. You know, that kind of thing. And it's also not that hard to follow through. Where it's like, you overbet the turn, get called, and you say, well, I'm stone bottom here. I just know I'm blindly jamming rivers, right? And I hope that he has a call fold. So I, I think, like, the better way for people to be prepared uh, to play against this is to start to create their own baked-in um, kind of tolerance, Right? So that they're not caught off guard. Because what I saw happening a lot in the past in these games where there are quote-unquote strong regs but aren't that studied and very weak passive recreationals is the weak passive recreational calls quarter pot on the flop, calls 75% pot on the turn, having no expectation of what's going to happen on the river. They just hope to show down. And then the river comes through pot and a half and like, fuck, I didn't expect an overbet. I can't imagine that my second pair is good here. It's like, yeah, well, it probably wasn't good on the turn either. Uh, so you clearly have a fold here. But like, if you get to the same spot with top pair, you're going to be equally as uncomfortable. And you need to be able to like click call. Otherwise, like, what are we doing here? And that was like the that was the 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 motif that I would see is that they would call call fold on boards that don't change, and then they would call 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 on boards that do change. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like uh, the queen jack completes for a straight and they had king queen on a king 10 high board and they go call, call, river nine, call, right? But in the same exact scenario where it's like king 10 high, they have king queen and they go call, call and the river's a deuce and they face the the 150% pot. They're just like, I mean, you have aces. You just have aces. You know, and they find the fold. Yeah. And it's like it should almost uh, just be consistent and just like, you know, you just have a hand that calls and learn that, you know, or uh, start to to prepare yourself on earlier streets because I think that Matt's point is very valid in the sense that they are trying to front load aggression in order to make a lot of money on the back end by just having it, right? Like they're often just too tight on the later streets. So the natural way to combat against that is to be more aggressive early with your hands that can improve or fold later with your hands that did not, right? You know, you get a king 10 high board, uh, you're going to have a lot of 10x that's going to want to call twice. You're going to have a lot of king x that may want to call two or three times, but not all of it can be check raising, right? Yeah, poker's a tough game. It's because uh, the <laughs> offensive statement. like the offensive player is always going to be able to put the defensive player in tough spots. Right, because the response is the defender. You're allowed to fold based off the price you're getting, but at the same time, if somebody is aggressive and putting money in the pot, you're not trying to figure out, is this hand winning money, and how can I make sure I can materialize that win through multiple streets? Because the game doesn't just end after flop and turn. Right. Right. In some cases, you face big bets and now have to make the decision of, is the EV that I gained on flop and turn still going to exist on the river? Right, you can make high value flop decision, high value turn decision, and then river can just be a disaster. Yeah. But it's hard to kind of have that mentality of I made two good decisions and now this is a really call it a really bad river for me. I'm allowed to fold this hand and it's very easy to get swept up in the I called twice and now I need to call the end. Yeah, absolutely. Like you don't I think it's it's funny because when I was first learning the game there was this logic of like you have to 
what you should decide kind of like kind of like pre-decide how you're going to play the hand right so like you kind of take a flop decision based on like i'm gonna raise the flop and then my plan is to like bet the turn or my plan is to fold the turn or whatever else but the more we start to understand strategy and the more we have access to solvers that can help us explore it and stuff like that the more we recognize that in reality you just have to be adaptable you have to be able to take a line on the flop knowing it's the best line and then recognize that on some turns you're going to do one thing on some turns you're going to do a different thing and and so on and so forth through to the river because you just have to be adapting to what the texture is you have to be adapting to what your opponent does and you you can't lock yourself into this approach of okay my plan is to do this this and this on these later streets and i'm going to follow through no matter what because you just have to be reactive to what the board brings most yeah. of the strategic differences are going to be made on the street that you make the first bet yeah right so you mm -hmm. look at flop and you say okay i know my I, my range has we'll play one size and now you say okay before i know what the turn is what am i doing on this turn mm -hmm. right if the turn's an overcard, if the turn is a flush complete if the turn is a paired card right so instead of looking at the turn and then trying to figure out what you're supposed to do or your preconceived plan of oh i'm just going to bet the turn if it's not this yeah doesn't work anymore right. especially when you're playing higher level poker and especially like when you it's funny because when you think about it in more depth you start to realize well there's only a finite number of turns there can be right so theoretically if you could pause the game at the point where you make your flop decision you could plan out what your strategy is going to be for every turn card so you you don't need to to pre-plan or oh, this is what i'm going to do on every single turn because you know what the subset is of cards that can possibly come and you can bracket those into different categories quite easily. So you can you can have a vague idea in mind, but it's not like um, it's not like there are so many possibilities of what the turn could be that we just have to we have to plan it out in advance because we couldn't possibly we couldn't possibly know. Like we no, we can we can have a pretty clear example or a pretty clear idea in mind of what the turn is gonna be. We we know what the spectrum is. And we can build strategies when those turn cards come out, and we can have a certain idea in advance, but we don't need to we don't need to say like i'm gonna just follow through on every single turn card because there's some turn cards where clearly it might be bad to follow through with the hand that you actually have it's kind of the part where hard work actually does come into play yeah and not even a, a pretty decent exercise in some cases is you have a spot you have a board and you say okay how do i think my strategy changes on different turn cards so like mm -hmm. look at a deuce look at a three look at an over card look at a flush complete card look at a board uh, board pairing card and then before you look at what the answer is you come to your own conclusions of how much do i think i bet globally and what do i think certain hands want to do mm -hmm. and then like some patterns will just stay the same like if the board's king queen deuce the turn four and turn five are pretty close to each other but yeah. a turn ace is gonna be very different than a turn king or queen mm -hmm. and then you look at the boards and you look at the different strategies you can have and then you'll say okay like on queen jack two a jack on the turn is kind of roughly the same thing as a queen on the turn and king queen deuce yeah i really i think that um there's a lot of people who would benefit from spending time with uh like aggregate reports for turns on either on wizard or on uh, po or whatever platform you're using for for solves like the the ability to look at a certain spot and say after i bet the turn these turn cards are my overbet cards. These are my small bet cards. Whatever, whatever it is, it's it's really powerful because it gives you a a more accurate. You, you, like on the flop, you can't really get a clear snapshot of your strategy because there's so many different flops. But you can easily look at a turn report and say, okay, well, when the turn is a heart, when the turn is a seven, when the turn is a nine, whatever it is, I'm doing this, this, and this, and it'll be so consistent. Quite often, like you'll you'll very very often see 
that on a certain board, for example, like if the turn is a low card and it doesn't complete a flush, the strategy looks almost exactly the same. And it, it's really helpful to, to start to get a sense of like, oh, these are the, even just going beyond looking at this is the subset of turns that can possibly happen. Sometimes you arrive at the turn, you see, oh, well, there's really only three types of spots that come up. There's like low card that doesn't complete a flush, low card that does complete a flush, and then there's other cards or whatever it is. And you'll see three very distinct strategies for, for each of those categories. And it's, it's a really powerful thing to, to be able to do. Matt, so, can you explain what aggregate reports are? I how, can, yeah. Aggregate reports, uh, if you're using something like PO or Wizard, it's basically looking at not just one individual solve, but a report that shows you every board texture. Uh, for, or a subset of board textures. So, uh, for example, if you're using PO Solver, you can run a sim, and then you can tell it to run the same sim across a sample of, say, 20 different flops. And you can then produce a report, which is an Excel file, that summarizes the strategies across all of those boards. So you can get a sense of how the frequencies change, what the bet sizes are, and how each flop texture is going to be different. And then from there, you can move on to the turn and you can see even using PO you can actually do it using the entire 20 flop subset or whatever flop subset you used you can then also use also um, look at the turn so you can look at whatever combinations of flop and turn are the highest frequency for taking this line you can actually see that in the Excel file as well so with PO it's an Excel file with GTO Wizard uh, they don't have turn and river reports for the custom solving just yet but they do for the archive have turn reports not rivers because rivers are different but um yeah you can you can basically look at any line on the flop and view what the turn strategy is in the aggregate across the all the possible turns that come out yeah decent idea too. call it versus the aggressive type that bets too much especially if you're playing as a defender Something that's underutilized at the moment, especially in cash and kind of becoming more introduced in MTTs is playing out of position leads. Mm -hmm. So instead of playing the check call game, there's a bunch of different turns that can come across that are very helpful to your range that now you can put them in tough spots by taking over the aggression. Mm -hmm. Where sometimes maybe a board, card, a board changes, like a board pair comes or a flush complete comes after a big bet. And now you can actually play some, uh, they're not like stun bets, if you will, but if someone just kind of blasts, they now have to have some form of equity in order to continue. Mm -hmm. And now finding the unintuitive raises becomes tougher for the aggressive player. So you're looking for like when the range advantage shifts back into your favor, the EV shifts back into your favor. Mm -hmm. and then yeah. And it, in particular, yeah. when you're up against a player whose range is too wide to begin with, you kind of get more, you get inherently more opportunities to lead turns because you're up against a wider C betting range. Your equity is higher. <clears throat> And then when you get to the turn, some turn cards that might be kind of okay for you against a player who has an appropriate kind of a range actually become really good for you against a player whose range is too wide. Um, and this is particularly true when they, if they bet a little bit bigger on the flop, uh, what you kind of tend to see sometimes is that because you're calling a big bet with a fairly condensed range, you're calling a bet mostly with hands that have decent equity, you're not going to be calling with a bunch of random float hands. You actually end up in spots where like they bet, let's say they bet like three quarters pot on the flop. You call and then on a certain turn card, you get to like lead your entire range. 
because they never have that card and you just have such a condensed range that you actually benefit from from putting a lot of their hands in a tough spot by leading small so there's a lot of interesting things you can do to to put them in spots that they're not comfortable with or put them in spots that are unfamiliar and it doesn't just come down to we're just playing the bluff catching game right yeah. because the bluff catching game is just a game that leads to zero ev river decisions or you know, maybe slightly profitable river decisions if your opponent actually is over bluffing but in the end bluff catching is just not a significant source of profit it's not how we make money in this game uh, because it's not designed to make us money unless our opponent is just wildly uh, bluffing too much because they can always just they can have it sometimes right even aggressive players get to have it sometimes yeah most of the uh, value that comes from playing versus aggressive players seems like it comes from the sense of equity denial mm -hmm. so now you're trying to find different ways to deny equity whether it's pre-flop and you three bet a little bit wider but linear so now you're taking hands that you're supposed to mix three bets like maybe a hand like pocket eights and taking it as a three bet because they played too many hands yeah. or you're finding spots to find leads after they bet too much with their certain portions of range to now deny their equity to their call it no ev hands which do end up playing well in a polarized range for the imposition aggressor so the person's not actually making that big of a mistake when they're playing polar ranges with nothing because you're not supposed to have equity when you bet in a polar spot where you either snap call or snap fold. Mm -hmm. um, so now there's other different ways that you can try to deny and instead of letting them kind of do the work for you, you start doing the work yourself. Call it through check raising and finding ways to run your equity and have that equity advantage shift of having the open-endeds, having the, the gut shots and still having some good hands in that range as well to still t stack their top end value but it's not just about playing the check call game and hoping that you're going to be the one that traps them i think mm -hmm. i think something that uh on a simple level maybe you guys aren't necessarily addressing or, or you are but maybe in a bit of uh a bit of nuance is um <clears throat> kind of the the aspect of um I guess, like speaking for the audience, what would you say whenever somebody just kind of replies to to this advice that you're giving of, well, that's all well and good, but you don't know Tom. He doesn't yeah. give a fuck, right? Like, if I lead, he raises. If I check raise, he three bets. Like, there are these player types that seemingly stick money in with reckless abandonment. Mm -hmm. And it's easy for us to combat against because we know strategy well and we understand what those uncovered nodes look like when somebody's just doing shit that doesn't really happen right we, mm -hmm. we we baked in a pretty good um conditional response of like okay well if he does x and x is disincentivized by theory then i counter with y right but for a lot of our listeners they're not going to be built into that very much so. And Lamanda, you and Conrad, I think, can speak to this. Live poker, Melissa was kind of talking about it the other day. Live poker is very much a cooperative environment where mm -hmm. everybody plays in flow. There's an expectation of bet sizings being within a range. Uh, there's an expectation of, you know, it check checking uh, on certain turn cards. One liners don't get bet enough. Four flushes don't get bet enough. All of this stuff, right? There's, there's a certain cooperation or handshake agreement amongst everybody in the environment where it's like hey don't make it 120 pre whenever it goes 20 call 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 that's too much yeah 
You know, we came here to play cards. We came here to see flop stars mm-hmm. and rivers, and you're disrupting that yeah. by going all in or by making it too much. <laughs> how, how dare, dare you, you play try to good make strategy? How dare you try to make money? You know, yeah. but, but that, that's what it is too. It's like especially like a lot of like limping goes on. Like you limp, 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 and then you, you know, somebody 20 makes exit, ten exit, yeah. ten exit, and then they're like, they look at you like, Jesus, want to see a flop? Well. Sorry. <laughs> See, this is why I like MTTs because at least with yeah. MTTs, everybody admits that they're there because they're trying to win, right? Mm-hmm. In cash games, there's no expectation of like, well, I'm here to f- I'm here to play for fun, so it's not okay for you to take my money. Like that's <laughs> kind of absurd to me. Yeah. Well, I guess like going back to the question of like what do you like what do you do when someone doesn't care? Uh, I think the answer is be a lot more selective with how you put in money in the first place. Yeah. Like. A lot of the value when it comes to poker is having the foresight to understanding your opponent's counter. Mm-hmm. Where you say, oh, he doesn't care. He's always going to check raise me. Okay. Then you stop bluffing in some capacity and you always bet with equity. Yeah. And you bet hands that can sustain a check raise. Or, or the alternative uh, or the, the other route is that if you are very confident in that read, then you just have to be the person who puts in the last bet. You know, you have to, you have to make it like that. If you guys ever, you, I mean, you must have seen this, this classic Phil Ivey hand where it's, him and uh, Phil Jackson, I think it is, and it's like a Jack-Jack-5 board, and they're clicking it back with each other. And Ivy eventually just shoves because he knows the guy never takes this line with a Jack, and the guy mm-hmm. just folds, right? And yep. it's like they, they both have complete air. The guy who wins is the guy who puts in the last bet. Right. And at some point, like, if you really have confidence, like, yeah, if, if, okay, this, this player, Joe, whatever, like, he just always check raises when I bet, then just always three bet, you know? Or... If, if you're that confident in this read, then just play according to what you would do if you absolutely, absolutely knew that this guy didn't have it. Oh, wow, you've actually got the footage. That, that is, this is, what, see, this is why we pay Guapo big money, you know? Mm-hmm. He gets the, gets the footage You right mean here. tortillas. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's the hurdle, though, that like being comfortable putting in that three bet. It's hard. I mean, it, this, it's not a comfortable game, you know? Like, we're, it's, it's uh, a lot of the biggest periods of development come from when you're willing to put yourself in spots you haven't been in before or you're willing to do things that you previously weren't willing to do and being able to have the the sort of fearlessness i guess almost to to go without a safety net and say okay well my read is that this guy is just raising way too many hands therefore i'm going to three bet sometimes you are going to be wrong like there's there's definitely going to be spots where you're going to make a read and it's just going to be wrong and you're going to have to live with the consequences but this, uh, like I say, this game isn't designed to be comfortable. You know, there's there's a lot of discomfort that comes with taking the um, taking the the best lines in every spot. And I think for a lot of players, there's there's this weird threshold where they're really good at playing the spots that are comfortable, and their weaknesses start to exhibit themselves as soon as they get into the spots that are uncomfortable. And particularly in tournaments, there's a lot of spots where like it's not comfortable, but you still have to just like get it in, right? Like you just have to be all in pre, even though it sucks when you get called or you have to be all in pre, even though when you lose, you just bubble or whatever else. The players that never actually reach their potential are the players who, as soon as it gets uncomfortable, they're not willing to take that spot. But the players who actually do really well are the ones who are exposing themselves to those uncomfortable spots taking the spot and living with the consequences. And, and in the end, in the long term, that's what produces really high-level players, I think. Yeah, just to seek discomfort, be okay with like, not being okay. Sometimes the spots that feel the scariest are actually the spots that you can win the most. You know, like 
Sometimes it's just about being the person that says alone on river after check raise barreling. Mm -hmm. right? And there's a lot of the check raise bet check where some of your EV is baked into still having that aggression, still potentially winning on turn cards that shift in your favor, and then just firing through because the bluff is worth zero. But the other option, as opposed to not bluffing, is worth negative a lot. Yeah, yeah. right. And I think there's, if, you, if we had the capacity to program a solver to where you, like, if we told it you're never allowed to bluff the river, it would probably stop bluffing the earlier streets, or at least it would just play a completely linear strategy on the earlier streets, because if you're not willing to bluff the river, then bluffing the earlier streets becomes a bad idea as well, mm -hmm. you know? Like, if you're just trying to make hands, you're not actually going to be able to win, and it just turns the whole strategy on its head. So in the end, you, you have to be able to follow through. You have to be able to take the aggressive lines in the spots where it's necessary, because that's just the foundation of how you win at this game. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I think that uh, a lot of that strategy just speaks to building up. You know, when, whenever we, I know we memed a lot on uh, Torelli and, and Little about the notion of working harder, but th this is really what it comes down to. It's not working harder, it's working smarter, right? Mm -hmm. um, building up the confidence will then build up the courage to play these spots a hell of a lot better. But in order to do that, you actually have to know what it is that you are attempting to develop. Right. There is no I know we listed this three tips to to beat aggressive players, but there aren't three exact tips like, yeah, we can tell you to front load aggression more. We can tell you to check raise them more. We can tell you to uh, take the betting lead more often, and that's going to lead to more positive results. And it will. But it's meaningless without the framework of theory. And what's really important here that Matt and Landon are ultimately framing out is the notion of working harder is actually just putting work dedicated to spots that are plaguing you. And what these aggressive players or these loose players in particular will highlight to most is where you're most vulnerable. And most people are going to be vulnerable in the, the marginal middling equity hands, the bluff catchers, the hands that are supposed to bluff but don't feel comfortable doing so. These are the areas that uh, it's really critical for everybody who wants to become better and to win in their environment to get more well-versed at right and most of this just comes down to being able to study a spot and compartmentalize your range into high equity hands middling equity hands and low equity hands and then just understanding the incentives of each category right mm -hmm. just understanding how you move through street to street dependent upon where you fall in the equity distribution and how that equity will shift on certain cards if you have no vision over what a turn card does to the overall construction of your range and how some of your high equity hands become moderate and how moderate hands may go uh, up to the high bucket. If you, if you don't have vision over that, you get too locked in to your exact two cards. You just keep having aces on a board texture that constantly is changing and you treat it all as the same. You treat aces as a high equity hand on three deuce deuce the same as you do on jack 10 nine, right? And the problem is, is it's not the same. Right? Mm -hmm. right, the equity of aces is is miles different here. Right, so the ability to traverse the three streets is very different on these board textures. The ability to uh, be aggressive with the hand as opposed to bluff catch with the hand is very different on these two board textures, and that's really important to understand because what happens is you have other hands that complement it. Right, you'll just have other hands like jack ten on jack ten nine or sets or king queen that are much stronger and much higher in equity than aces are. And those are the hands that you should play the same way that you would play aces on three deuce deuce. 
So it's important to not look at it at the hand level, but instead just look at it at the range level of uh, how much equity is actually attached to the current holding that I have. Where does it fall in that hierarchy? And how can I find complementary hands in different spots, right? That I can play similarly. Your strategy will actually be pretty generic across all textures. It's the hands that change. You know, your candidates largely shift dependent upon the texture itself. Right. The global yeah. strategies you choose are based off of what happens in the, in the hand as well as the board. And we've kind of gotten to a point now where AI distills into, call it, most preferred bet sizes, right? You give, uh, call it Wizard AI, the ability to make a one-sizing strat or a two-sizing strat, you'll see a lot of B40 and B67s. On, on flops and then on turns you'll see a lot of overbets especially like in the mtts and and cash and disconnect turns and things on along these lines but now the point is does your hand actually want to take that action because it's very it's very easy to try to copy paste that oh when this turn comes you always do this and now you're putting yourself in uncomfortable spots or just lighting money on fire where you only get called by better hands and get folds from everything worse mm -hmm. so now it's a matter of how do I navigate uncomfortability and being okay with having decisions that might not be worth a lot in this instance, but matter a lot for range construction? I think it's called discomfort, not uncomfortability. Yeah. <laughs> respect respect, like respect to making up a new word. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we do here at the yeah, Friends say, Podcast. Is uncomfortability kind of a word? It can be now, Landon. You know what? I will absolutely allow it. Let's yeah. add it to the lexicon. We'll, we'll put it in the Zoomer dictionary. You know what? I, I mean, let's just might... ask Andy. If no, it's, it's a word. It's a word on dictionary.com. Okay. Well, Fair on, enough. Oh, sorry. On Urban well, Dictionary? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> uh, Neologisms.rice. It's from rice.edu. Uncomfortability. It's a made up word. The act of making another extremely anxious or upset. Uh, okay. Uncom yeah. All right. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's I, I would book it. So oh, it's, if, it, if it's a neologism, it. it's half a new word. Like it's it's somebody else already made it up, but we're also kind of making it up. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. We need a book it countdown. Once somebody says book it, the other person has five seconds. You know, either acceptor. Acceptor. It sounds like a word. Discomfort is also a word. <laughs> discomfort is discomfort definitely is word. definitely. Discomfort is also a word. There's no dispute yeah. on that. Seek discomfort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's that was a good, the, that was a good uh, stretch. I think we did well yeah, on that one. Yeah, sure. I agree. Hopefully everybody got something out of that, a uh, little bit of benefit to you in your <laughs> loose, aggressive environments. God, if you're in a loose, aggressive game, thank your lucky stars. All these fucking this nits out there. Aggressive game. You mm -hmm. should become the lag and punish all these nits that are out there trying to nut pedal and no limit hold them. Easy. Grow up. Easy. All of you grow up. Um, that's going to do it for us today. We're going to be back again tomorrow at 11 a.m. This is going to be our, our normal time for the time being, at least. Uh, I think we're going to have a fun one tomorrow. We got a lot to talk about. There is uh, still a lot more going down on Global Poker. They put out a response to the uh, Project Baby cheating or cheating accusations. It wasn't great, guys. It's just a little down bad. It, let's it, just it's say. not a great response. Uh, it don't look good, cuz. Yeah, it doesn't look good. We're going to dig into that tomorrow. We're going to dig into uh, Battenfield from WSOP, who was previously falsely accused. Uh, WSOP has recently unsuspended his account, so he's been cleared of all charges. We'll talk about that again tomorrow. Uh, and I believe we have Melissa in studio, so we're going to get mm -hmm. to some fun things as well. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. We'll see you guys all tomorrow. Later, Peace. Peace.